Book One, Chapters Sixteen and Seventeen of History of Animals by Aristotle. Translated by Darcy Wentworth Thompson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Sixteen. The parts, then, that are externally visible are arranged in the way above stated, and as a rule have their special designations, and from use and want are known familiarly to all. But this is not the case with the inner parts. For the fact is that the inner parts of man are, to a very great extent, unknown, and the consequence is that we must have recourse to an examination of the inner parts of other animals, whose nature in any way resembles that of man. In the first place, then, the brain lies in the front part of the head, and this holds alike with all animals possessed of a brain, and all blooded animals are possessed thereof, and, by the way, mollusks as well. But taking size for size of animal, the largest brain and the moistest is that of man. Two membranes enclose it, the stronger one nearer the bone of the skull, the inner one round the brain itself is finer. The brain in all cases is bilateral. Behind this, right at the back comes what is termed the cerebellum differing in form from the brain, as we may both feel and see. The back of the head is with all animals empty and hollow, whatever be its size in the different animals, for some creatures have big heads, while the face below is small in proportion, as is the case with round-faced animals. Some have little heads and long jaws, as is the case without exception, among animals of the mane and tail species. The brain in all animals is bloodless, devoid of veins, and naturally cold to the touch. In the great majority of animals it has a small hollow in its centre. The brain call around it is reticulated with veins, and this brain call is that skin-like membrane which closely surrounds the brain. Above the brain is the thinnest and weakest bone of the head, which is termed bregma, or sinciput. From the eye there go three ducts to the brain, the largest and the medium-sized to the cerebellum, the least to the brain itself, and the least is the one situated nearest to the nostril. The two largest ones, then, run side by side and do not meet. The medium-sized ones meet, and this is particularly visible in fishes, for they lie nearer than the large ones to the brain. The smallest pair are the most widely separate from one another and do not meet. Inside the neck is what is termed the esophagus whose other name is derived from its length and narrowness, and the windpipe. The windpipe is situated in front of the esophagus in all animals that have a windpipe, and all animals have one that are furnished with lungs. The windpipe is made up of grizzle, 
is sparingly supplied with blood, and is streaked all round with numerous minute veins. It is situated in its upper part near the mouth, below the aperture formed by the nostrils into the mouth, an aperture through which, when men in drinking inhale any of the liquid, this liquid finds its way out through the nostrils. In betwixt the two openings comes the so-called epiglottis, an organ capable of being drawn over and covering the orifice of the windpipe communicating with the mouth. The end of the tongue is attached to the epiglottis. In the other direction the windpipe extends to the interval between the lungs, and hereupon bifurcates into each of the two divisions of the lung, for the lung in all animals possessed of the organ has a tendency to be double. In viviparous animals, however, the duplication is not so plainly discernible as in other species, and the duplication is least discernible in man. And in man the organ is not split into many parts, as is the case with some vivipara. Neither is it smooth, but its surface is uneven. In the case of the ovipara, such as birds and oviparous quadrupeds, the two parts of the organ are separated to a distance from one another, so that the creatures appear to be furnished with a pair of lungs, and from the windpipe, itself single, there branch off two separate parts extending to each of the two divisions of the lung. It is attached also to the great vein, and to what is designated the aorta. When the windpipe is charged with air, the air passes on to the hollow parts of the lung. These parts have divisions composed of grizzle, which meet at an acute angle. From the divisions run passages through the entire lung, giving off smaller and smaller ramifications. The heart also is attached to the windpipe by connections of fat, grizzle, and sinew and at the point of juncture there is a hollow. When the windpipe is charged with air, the entrance of the air into the heart, though imperceptible in some animals, is perceptible enough in the larger ones. Such are the properties of the windpipe, and it takes in and throws out air only, and takes in nothing else, either dry or liquid, or else it causes you pain until you shall have coughed up whatever may have gone down. The esophagus communicates at the top with the mouth, close to the windpipe, and is attached to the backbone, and the windpipe by membranous ligaments, and at last finds its way through the midriff into the belly. It is composed of flesh-like substance, and is elastic both lengthways and breadthways. The stomach of man resembles that of a dog, for it is not much bigger than the bowel, but is somewhat like a bowel of more than usual width. Then comes the bowel, single, convoluted, moderately wide. The lower part of the gut is like that of a pig, for it is broad, and the part from it to the buttocks is thick and short. The call or great omentum, is attached to the middle of the stomach, and consists of a fatty membrane, as is the case with all other animals whose stomachs are single, 
and which have teeth in both jaws. The mesentery is over the bowels. This also is membranous and broad, and turns to fat. It is attached to the great vein, and the aorta, and there run through it a number of veins closely packed together, extending towards the region of the bowels, beginning above and ending below. So much for the properties of the esophagus, the windpipe, and the stomach. Chapter 17 The heart has three cavities, and is situated above the lung at the division of the windpipe, and is provided with a fatty and thick membrane, where it fastens onto the great vein and the aorta. It lies with its tapering portion upon the aorta, and this portion is similarly situated in relation to the chest in all animals that have a chest. In all animals alike, in those that have a chest and in those that have none, the apex of the heart points forwards, although this fact might possibly escape notice by a change of position under dissection. The rounded end of the heart is at the top. The apex is, to a great extent, fleshy and close in texture, and in the cavities of the heart are sinews. As a rule, the heart is situated in the middle of the chest in animals that have a chest, and in man it is situated a little to the left-hand side, leaning a little way from the division of the breasts towards the left breast in the upper part of the chest. The heart is not large, and in its general shape it is not elongated. In fact, it is somewhat round in form. Only, be it remembered, it is sharp-pointed at the bottom. It has three cavities, as has been said, the right-hand one, the largest of the three, the left-hand one, the least, and the middle one, intermediate in size. All these cavities, even the two small ones, are connected by passages with the lung, and this fact is rendered quite plain in one of the cavities. And below, at the point of attachment, in the largest cavity, there is a connection with the great vein near which the mesentery lies, and in the middle one there is a connection with the aorta. Canals lead from the heart into the lung, and branch off, just as the windpipe does, running all over the lung, parallel with the passages from the windpipe. The canals from the heart are uppermost, and there is no common passage, but the passages, through their having a common wall, receive the breath, and pass it on to the heart, and one of the passages conveys it to the right cavity, and the other to the left. With regard to the great vein and the aorta, we shall, by and by, treat of them together in a discussion devoted to them, and to them alone. In all animals that are furnished with a lung, and that are both internally and externally viviparous, the lung is of all organs the most richly supplied with blood, for the lung is throughout spongy in texture, and along by every single pore in it go branches from the great vein. Those who imagine it to be empty are altogether mistaken, and they are led into their error by their observation of lungs removed from animals under dissection, 
out of which organs the blood has all escaped immediately after death. Of the other internal organs, the heart alone contains blood, and the lung has blood not in itself but in its veins. But the heart has blood in itself, for in each of its three cavities it has blood, but the thinnest blood is what it has in its central cavity. Under the lung comes the thoracic diaphragm, or midriff, attached to the ribs, the hypochondria, and the backbone, with a thin membrane in the middle of it. It has veins running through it, and the diaphragm, in the case of man, is thicker in proportion to the size of his frame than in other animals. Under the diaphragm, on the right-hand side lies the liver, and on the left-hand side the spleen, alike in all animals that are provided with these organs, in an ordinary and not preternatural way. For, be it observed, in some quadrupeds, these organs have been found in a transposed position. These organs are connected with the stomach by the call. To outward view, the spleen of man is narrow and long, resembling the self-same organ in the pig. The liver, in the great majority of animals, is not provided with a gallbladder, but the latter is present in some. The liver of a man is round-shaped and resembles the same organ in the ox. And, by the way, the absence above referred to of a gallbladder is at times met with in the practice of augury, for instance, in a certain district of the Chalcidic settlement in Eubea, the sheep are devoid of gallbladders, and in Naxos, nearly all the quadrupeds have one so large that foreigners, when they offer sacrifice with such victims, are bewildered with fright, under the impression that the phenomenon is not due to natural causes, but bodes some mischief to the individual offerers of the sacrifice. Again, the liver is attached to the great vein, but it has no communication with the aorta, for the vein that goes off from the great vein goes right through the liver, at a point where are the so-called portals of the liver. The spleen also is connected only with the great vein, for a vein extends to the spleen off from it. After these organs come the kidneys, and these are placed close to the backbone and resemble in character the same organ in kind. In all animals that are provided with this organ, the right kidney is situated higher up than the other. It has also less fatty substance than the left-hand one, and is less moist, and this phenomenon also is observable in all the other animals alike. Furthermore, passages or ducts lead into the kidneys both from the great vein and from the aorta, only not into the cavity. For, by the way, there is a cavity in the middle of the kidney, bigger in some creatures and less in others, but there is none in the case of the seal. This latter animal has kidneys resembling in shape the identical organ in kind, but in its case the organs are more solid than in any other known creature. The ducts that lead into the kidneys lose themselves in the substance of the kidneys themselves, 
and the proof that they extend no farther rests on the fact that they contain no blood, nor is any clot found therein. The kidneys, however, have, as has been said, a small cavity. From this cavity in the kidney there lead two considerable ducts, or ureters, into the bladder, and others spring from the aorta, strong and continuous. And to the middle of each of the two kidneys is attached a hollow sinewy vein, stretching right along the spine through the narrows. By and by these veins are lost in either loin, and again become visible, extending to the flank. And these off-branchings of the veins terminate in the bladder, for the bladder lies at the extremity and is held in position by the ducts stretching from the kidneys along the stalk that extends to the urethra, and pretty well all round it is fastened by fine sinewy membranes that resemble to some extent the thoracic diaphragm. The bladder in man is proportionately to his size tolerably large. To the stalk of the bladder the private part is attached, the external orifices coalescing, but a little lower down one of the openings communicates with the testicles, and the other with the bladder. The penis is grisly and sinewy in its texture. With it are connected the testicles in male animals, and the properties of these organs we shall discuss in our general account of the said organ. All these organs are similar in the female, for there is no difference in regard to the internal organs except in respect to the womb, and with reference to the appearance of this organ I must refer the reader to diagrams in my anatomy. The womb, however, is situated over the bowel, and the bladder lies over the womb. But we must treat by and by in our pages of the womb of all female animals viewed generally, for the wombs of all female animals are not identical, neither do their local dispositions coincide. These are the organs internal and external of man, and such is their nature and such their local disposition. End of chapter 17 and end of book 1